it's with great privilege that we have joining our program today's special guest and globally respected business leader, Nicholas Moore AO. Nicholas, thanks for, for your time. I've been looking forward to this, as you know, for, for many years now. I want to start, if we could, with your background. We'll get into the depth and breadth of your career shortly, but tell us a little bit about your, your family history to begin, if you could. I grew up in uh, in Sydney, largely a little bit in Brisbane, but largely in Sydney in the uh, in the 60s and 70s. Uh, it was uh, in suburban life. It was you know very pleasant. It was very nice. Uh, I had a I was, had the good fortune to have a um, a very caring and uh, and loving family situation with my with my parents. Uh, my dad went to work. He was in worked for a, for a company all his life, the same company, and my mum was a stay-at-home mum with uh, five kids, and I was the, the middle of five kids. And from there, tell us about uh, the school life of, of Nicholas Moore. You went to two schools, as I, I recall. What were you like as a student? Well, the schools, uh, it, this was the 60s and 70s, and so we were the baby boomers, and so uh, the capacity of all the school, everything we touched, basically, was it was full. So we had lots of kids in the class. There was lots of energy, lots of excitement. It was a transitional time, I think, for society in many different ways happening at the time. And I think the educational experience on offer, particularly with the you know, benefit of hindsight, was was very good. You know, it was very, it was a content-rich curriculum. We were being fed, whether we liked it or not. We were being fed, you know, in quite large classes and uh, and the teachers were skilled in, uh, I think, crowd control as well as their underlying uh, subject experience. It was, um, it was good. And the interest and exposure to business, I recall, uh, and if I, if I read correctly, came to you about age 16 or 17 when you had a certain affinity for, for certain business subjects. What, what was the genesis of that? Yeah, well, I always, um, my father was in business and so one naturally looks at to your, to your own father in terms of, and your mother in terms of what education, oh, so what occupation you'll take. So business did seem to me interesting. It also wasn't particularly focused on at school. We did, I did commerce in the younger years, I did economics uh, in the older years. And it was more the question always hovering out there is how does this all work? How does it all fit together? You know, how is it that, you know, we have what we have and that, you know, that this multitudinous of, of goods and services and things happen. And that was always of great interest. And when you talked and focused on individual businesses, they were just always tiny slices of a much bigger story. So doing economics at school was, you know, you looked at the bigger story, you looked at some of the basic rules. So it was always of, of, of interest and, um, and always a bit of a, a mystery. And so a mystery that, you know, one was, you know, drawn towards. And you then carried that interest forward to a Bachelor of Law and Bachelor of Commerce degree at the University of New South Wales. Tell me about your experiences at, at university. You were drawn, if I recall correctly, more to the accounting side initially. What, what was that like? Yeah, now I'd, I'd express it slightly differently that um, I, uh, I always liked the idea of business. And back then when I was at school, the view was if you wanted to do business, a very good business degree was, was commerce law. Uh, my brother was also doing a combined law course at New South Wales. So as always, you, you follow what you see. So it was a sensible place for me to go to. But I was always much more interested in, you know, life beyond university and 
the possibilities and you know what was happening out there. So it was not unnatural for me when I finished to look at the commerce side, which was accounting, as you say, as a way of being able to understand more about business. Law was very good in terms of understanding the basic um, contractual relationships, relationships and trying to bring everything back to you know the smallest possible unit. Uh, accounting, of course, an information system. What was sort of missing at university, for me anyway, is how it all fitted together. And that's why actually going to work with businesses, around businesses, allowed you to see from the micro of this is what a legal contract is, this is the way people work together, this is the outcomes they want to achieve, and how it all fits together. So the accounting and the law were more like building blocks in terms of being able to then say, OK, well, what, what does it mean? How do you bring it all together? And if I recall correctly, you also completed a six-month course at the College of Law to become a solicitor. Yes. What happened next? I read that you, you joined an accountancy firm. Tell us about your chartered accountancy program over that four years and, and some of the engagements that you worked on at the time. Sure. I joined um, uh, Pete Marwick, what now is um, uh, called KPMG, uh, into, their, uh, into their tax uh, group and they had a specialised group within the firm in, in those days. And I think it was the largest of its sort in the, in the country. And as always, they had a multitude of different companies doing different things. And you were looking at it from a relative, mostly from a relatively limited viewpoint, of course, in terms of saying, OK, what, how does accounting treat this expenditure or this expense? What's the tax treatment? What's the difference between the two? How do you account for that difference? And there was also uh, uh, some of the number of the partners I worked for worked in the finance and actually one in the property industry. Uh, and so there was quite a focus on financing for large projects, you know, large, you know, what were then, you know, power stations or, um, or you know, tourist resorts or bridges and all that sort of stuff. So we provided advice in terms of what the implications were of providing different sorts of finance, you know, whether it be, um, you know, all sorts of different forms of financing for these assets. This would have been, if I recall and if I've done the maths correctly, around about the mid-80s. What were the yep. economic conditions like at the time? When I started work, as I recall, this is back in 82, I think unemployment was at, you know, sort of 9% level, so it was quite high, you know, relative to where it's been since. And the economic circumstances in the early 80s, you know, from the 70s, you know, we had rolling sort of this stagflation period and then, you know, we were moving to the world of, you know, higher interest rates to bring it all under control. So the early 80s, um, it was moving out of the 70s style of recessions that we had. Uh, then, of course, we had into um, 88, we had a boom with, the, you know, bicentenary and property prices and everything you know got a bit got a bit crazy uh, and then of course we we had the recession we had to have you know famously in the early 90s uh, where interest rates went very high indeed you know some businesses were looking at 20% interest rates 14% interest rates very high interest rates and so we saw a big contraction uh, across you know many different sectors of the economy so Pete Marwick, and then correct me if I'm wrong, but it was during this time that you began establishing a, a friendship with a John Keldon who worked at Macquarie? No, that was more so I, I was at Pete Marwick and then they, the partners, the tax, some of the tax partners from there separated and formed a new firm called Cherry and Partners, which, and I was, 
I went with them. So there were four partners and, and me as the sort of the, the, the junior burger, um, which was a good experience, very busy for a couple of years. And then that basically all came to an end between the partners back in about 1986. So then I had heard that, that Macquarie were looking, they were up and coming, you know, they'd just become Macquarie from Hill Samuel and they're looking at hiring people. And I called them and said, you know, I'm here and went through the employment process and was hired then back in 86. And that's when I met John. Uh, John had been a former uh, tax partner at Pricewaterhouse in their, um, amongst other things, in their Parramatta office. And uh, I joined there uh, in the area that was called Corporate Services, which is a very, um, uh, very bland sort of name. So it was effectively, you'd call it now, the investment banking group. It was the investment banking in terms of um, probably corporate finance. It was like giving advice uh, to corporations in terms of mergers and acquisitions, sales, divestments, uh, fundraisings, things of that nature. So I and uh, and John was a senior leader in that business, and I joined with you know with I can't remember how many people were in corporate services back then, but there would have been I'm guessing you know we had a half a floor of a building, so I'm guessing we had like you know probably 40 people or something in the team. I'm guessing. From what I'm hearing, there obviously a, a lot. Uh, different sort of style of role to, to what you were doing in, in the sort of accountancy days. Quite right, quite right. First impressions of, of Macquarie? Well, it was very liberating. Uh, in, in the accounting firm, it was terrific. It was very structured. So you started off sort of at where you sat. You know, you, there were like three seats. You know, sat closest to the aisle. You're the most junior. Then you sit in the middle when you get a promotion. Then you sit at the back when you get promoted again. And then when you get promoted again, you sit in a little office and then after that, you know, you go off and become a partner and what have you. So everything about it was, was very structured, which was good. Um, the way work, the work flowed was very structured. You know, every letter had to be checked three times before it went out. Every set of accounts, everything you were doing was very structured. It was very, uh, had to be signed off, you know, level by level. The hierarchy between the individuals was very structured, so partners were always Mr. This and Mr. That. So it's a very structured environment, which is good. As I said, it was good for the work. You know, there was sort of a, a zero tolerance of anything being wrong. Everything had to be 100% right, which was, you know, very high standards. So that was good. Macquarie was different in that there were no offices. There were no sort of uh, different seating for different classes of people. When we turned up there, everybody had the exactly the same desks, which were like these big old wooden desks. You know, wood, when I say wood, they were particle board with a bit of, you know, stuff stuck on them. Uh, they're all identical. They're all open floor plan. Um, you could be as sat next to a director as you sat next to a graduate. It made no difference. Everybody was treated exactly the same. That when you saw the chairman, it was, hello, David. When you met the um, managing director, Tony Berg, it was, hello, Tony. Uh, you would expect that if Tony saw you, he would say, Hello, Nicholas, what are you doing? And you'd have to have an answer and be able to... And so very open communications, very flat uh, from an organisational viewpoint uh, and very much, um, you know, a, a great sense of agency in terms of the individuals were expected, all the individuals in the firm were expected to direct themselves and to, you know, do what was necessary uh, to further the interests of the organisation. So that was quite, so for me, being in a position where everything was very much top down, 
very specified, you're to do this, you're to do that, to suddenly in this reverse world where it was very much bottom-up, uh, where agency was given and expected from people, uh, and this very seemingly informal uh, communication style. It was, as I said, it felt very liberating at the time, obviously very intimidating as well. Just walk us through those first, say, five to ten years. If I recall correctly, you were working quite heavily on domestic infrastructure deals, particularly there in the early 90s. Take us through what you were doing day to day in those days. It was, as I said, the, you know, the onus was on us to find uh, ways we can deliver value to you know, customers and, and, and clients. And even though we had uh, within the group, uh, it was clear that we did have customers and clients, uh, particularly in the M&A and the financing area. Our, our relative patch was you know, relatively small, not because the organisation said it was small, it's just the number of people and what we could do was, was relatively small. And coming back to John Calden, you mentioned, um, was a, a great manager uh, and very aspirational in terms of the sorts of things we could be doing. So we would very much, you know, open up the newspaper or annual reports, accounts and what have you, and we'd look at the different companies, um, sometimes they're clients of the firm, sometimes they weren't, and try to determine what the financing needs would be or what they were doing, and we would come up with ideas and we would pitch them and, you know, chase after things and, you know, there'd be a lot of that going on. And so obviously a lot of what we were doing were, you know, you'd look at as a, as a waste of time. A lot of ideas we had, you know, probably the world didn't, didn't think were, uh, they didn't want to do them, which is fair enough. Um, but we learned a lot and we learned a lot because we were, you know, basically starting from the bottom up in every area. Now at that time in terms of some of the areas, some of the things that we did, Leasing was an area, you know, uh, of finance that was, you know, very common as a way of uh, people financing, you know, both small and large assets. And so asset financing, leasing of different sorts was naturally an area we were engaged in for a whole range of different areas. Financing, you know, sort of companies in terms of M&A transactions related to the underlying M&A business of the firm was again an area that we got involved in, you know, different forms of financing. And from that, um, at that time, the governments of the world were stepping back or looking to step back and bring the private sector in to the provision of a whole range of services that were traditionally being done by, by governments. It was done for, you know, sort of two reasons. Number one, budgetary reasons that, you know, particularly with recessions and things like that, people uh, didn't have the, the finances, such as in Victoria at the time. And beyond that, there was a general view that markets could provide better solutions. And if governments could establish market mechanisms, then services could be provided through a market, um, whatever, whether it be power or water or what have you, that could be a more efficient way of providing the service to the community than the government owning it on their balance sheet. Those, so, so those sort of two, you know, sort of one was a practical reality and one was a bit of an intellectual thought that were taking place out there, which meant that here in Australia there were many different services that needed the private sector to be financed. So we drifted into that area. You know, we were pitching lots of different, to lots of people who were, you know, we had international companies who were looking at buying power stations, uh, water treatment facilities, all these different sorts of assets. And we were, we were being their financial advisor 
helping them navigate that and raising capital for them and what have you. And that's where that infrastructure uh, opportunity developed. And I think we were able to look at it from the client's viewpoint, but also see a number of the categories were relatively new. So in the power sector, there were no shortage of international uh, US and UK and European power companies who wanted to buy things, and so we advised them. But then we could see other areas, such as tollways, where there really wasn't any international company that were doing them. Even some of the water companies, people wanted to provide services for water companies, but they didn't want to own them. And so this area opened up where we could provide advice to people who were clients, but we didn't have clients always. And so we had to, inverted commas, make up our own clients, put together the company who was actually going to be doing the bidding and the owning and the what have you on a long-term basis. So uh, fortunately within Macquarie, we had that agency, that ability to say, OK, well, we can, we can raise, we can advise, we can raise finance. All of this had to be checked, of course, in the film. We couldn't just do it. We had to prove that we could do it. We could raise capital. We could underwrite capital. We could even put our own capital in on occasion in small amounts. And we could create companies and, and do things. And we could operate across these different this, this spectrum of activity. And that was really um, uh, the strength of the organisation, that it would allow us to, you know, sort of, if we could prove that what we were doing was sensible, if it was within clearly understood risk limits. You know, it wasn't just, you know, here you go, off you go. You had to prove it all the way. And with Tony, the chief executive, Tony Berg, he was very much, you know, focused on sort of saying, well, you prove that you can do it, prove you can do it, tell me what the risks are, make sure that we're happy with the risks. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a, but it was far from a freefall. It was a very, very disciplined approach. But the bias was to yes. The bias was to us to be able to establish that we could do it freedom within boundaries yeah. approach that you're describing there. Where did that originate from and then how important was it, and we'll get to this later, but when you were CEO having experience firsthand as an employee, that freedom to then carry that legacy through? I don't quite know where it came from. It always seems to have been. I joined shortly after Hill Samuel Australia became Macquarie, so it obviously existed in the Hill Samuel time. and. I don't know, you know, if you go all the way back to the beginning, there were people like Stan Owens, uh, who was a legendary chairman. I didn't know him. He was he died uh, before I joined. There was another guy called Chris Castleman, uh, obviously David Clark, uh, Tony Berg. They're all reflective of this sort of bottom-up view of the world, as you say, freedom within boundaries. It came from, I think, a respect for the individuals. They had a very challenging employment process, so they satisfied themselves, the people they employed were, you know, were, were capable people to start off with. And then, as you say, having this risk management uh, that the people themselves, you know, David and Tony, would very quickly understand the risks. They weren't just being told there's no risk here. They would, they would get their mind around what the risks were. And yes, we had, uh, you know, quite good risk management systems, but, you know, they, they were, uh, they, they felt competent uh, that they could make decisions on this as well. So, so I can't tell you, I have looked, obviously, you know, I was at Macquarie for a long time, so I did try to look back into the, um, back through the history, through the mist of time. I can't put my finger on who it was or how it was. It probably came with the organisation Hill Samuel when they came to Australia. Why did it work in Australia? And obviously it failed in the UK eventually. I, I don't know, but it'd be, a lot of the credit I think would be down to those, you know, those early 
people, Councilman uh, Tony Berg, Mark Johnson, uh, David Clark, Stan Owens, you know, these are the people who preceded me and, and I presume um, between them, that's the way the culture em emerged, evolved. Alongside the growth of Macquarie during the 90s, so too did, did your role within the firm in 96, you appointed Head of Project and Structured Finance and then two years later you were appointed Head of Asset in the Infrastructure Group. Tell me about your progression through the firm during that period. The firm was and, and is you know, very meritocratic, so there was no sort of structure you're going into. It wasn't like the army where you're a, you know, you're a private and you become a corporate and there's 100 privates and then there's you know, sort of five corporals and you go all the way up to general. It, it was never like that. It was a very organic uh, organisation which allowed people to grow. And if you did grow, if you were doing more, then the organisation would provide resources. And if you needed people, then you could hire people justified, of course, but you could hire people. And so then you, you grew and the organisation grew and that sort of, again, coming back to that bottom-up stuff. And so it wasn't, you know, the roles I had that you just mentioned, they didn't exist, I don't think, before I had them. There was no head of project and structured finance, but that was what it was called. There was no head of the asset and infrastructure group. It was, a, you know, um, the investment banking group that I became the head of after that. I mean, these were just an amalgamation of what people were doing uh, and putting them in different structures and what have you. So it was, as I said, it was very organic and it was reflecting the success that, that I had. And obviously when I say I, the, the team had, you know, much more than I had. You know, I was working with very good people and, you know, we were being successful and that allowed us to grow. And as a result of growing, you know, organisations form around you. You mentioned your appointment of uh, Head of Investment Banking, which I think was around about 2001, now known as, as Macquarie Capital. Not so much the appointment, but the growth of that division of, of the business. How did you go about achieving those significant growth numbers that, yeah. that you did? It's kind of like Macquarie Capital, but, but not really today. So you can't really draw an analogy. We had the investment banking bit. And then uh, John Calden, who you mentioned, he was one of probably five leaders of that business when I joined. Then he became the leader of that business through success. And then when I became project and structured finance, that was sort of a part of the overall, what was then the investment banking business. So he would have been in charge of all of it. And then a, a part of it, you know, the area that he would have been originally in charge of then became, you know, the group that I was responsible for. And then um, uh, we were going into, at that time, uh, with the infrastructure development uh, into not just advising and underwriting but also creating infrastructure vehicles you know that we were managing you know asset um, you know tollways and power stations and stuff like that that became a separate you know that asset management part became a sec separate part of the business about then and we also had the leasing businesses within our group and as well as that outside of our group we also had within Macquarie another a group of people who did leasing and they also had another group outside us as well who were called structured finance right so we had different areas you know all those came together when we set up the investment banking group so that ended up being the typical investment investment banking it also included uh, underwriting uh, that was done with our equities business uh, it also included um, so the equity equities business came in as well as that that was you know separate from us, but that came in at that time. 
Uh, it had the leasing businesses, so that had the leasing business had joined before together with the rest of us back when it became the asset uh, and infrastructure business. That included the, the all the other leasing businesses and the structured finance businesses within Macquarie. So the investment banking group was sort of like 60% of Macquarie or something like that by the time that were all got put together with all the different parts. And we had recently bought the investment banking division of Bankers Trust back in 99, which those people came in as well. So we're picking up a whole range of different parts of Macquarie uh, together within that, what we call the investment banking group. So there's no direct read across to Macquarie today. So it would, for example, have included the, um, the infrastructure asset management, but it wouldn't have included the other asset management business. You know, we put those together separately. So anyway, so it was a whole bunch of different things we brought together. It was good. I worked, uh, that's when I worked directly uh, with Shamara. So at that time, Shamara, the current chief executive, you know, she was part of the team. And, you know, I asked her to work with me very closely to bring all these disparate groups together, not just so that we could administrate it in an effective way, but actually get all the synergies and the potential out of bringing all these different skills together, which I think we did successfully as a, as a team. We, you know, we were able to bring all these people together, you know, ex-people from BT came in. As I said, we had the leasing, we had the, the, the equity underwriting people, the, the, um, the whole equities business in there, all these different areas coming together, working out how we could deliver um, better uh, products to all our customers out, who were very broad at this time, uh, new products, and it was, you know, it had quite a lot of momentum, a lot of really good people uh, who had built businesses and were able to, you know, deliver quite a lot. Just before we move on, you mentioned the, the Bankers Trust deal, the BT deal there in, in 99. Uh, I believe you played a significant part alongside Alan Moss in sort of playing point on, on that deal. How did that come together and how did you manage the two different cultures of the firms? Most people stay and most people rather came across from BT, some left and then ultimately came, came back a few years later. But how did you manage that integration? We, you know, our little group had bought a number of businesses before then, uh, Security Pacific, that had basically toppled over in the recession I mentioned before. So we bought Chemical Bank's business that had been in Australia, Boston's, Bank of Boston's business in Australia, Security Pacific that at the time had been the largest uh, merchant, mar largest merchant bank, I think, in Australia. And then we bought BT. Now, BT toppled over in New York and Deutsche Bank bought it. They then had two investment banks in Australia. They obviously didn't need two investment banks. They also had a fund management business that they sold off to principal. And they had this investment banking business that obviously they had to do something with. And so we, um, uh, we you know, sort of knew what was happening. We were sort of there. And then we waited for the call, which we received. And we went and did it. And we had thought it through, obviously. We knew what we wanted. Uh, it wasn't just the investment banking business. We also looked at their uh, financial markets business as well. They had been very active in the financial markets area. Actually, Peter Warren down the corridor there uh, was a, you know, was leading that part of the business. And so that was a big step up for our commodities business. And then on the investment banking side, we took on their investment bankers who had been a very strong team in Australia. And we put a lot of work into, from the investment banking side, of bringing all, as many of those uh, very talented individuals on board that we could. They had, you know, different focus and specialisations, uh, some of them than, than we had. Uh, some excellent people, some, you know, really excellent people came on board then that 
played a, you know, an ongoing role in the group. And then in terms of the financial market side, Peter joined as a, as a consultant, but together with a range of other particular groups, BT had been very strong in the foreign exchange, in fixed income, which we, we, were, we weren't strong in fixed income, uh, niche businesses like agricultural commodities that they brought in. Uh, so a number of those businesses, and so that was, so Andrew Down looked after, he was looking after our commodities business at that time, so he looked after those, and we looked after the uh, investment banking side of the, of the equation. So we've delved into, let's call it, say, your first chapter at Macquarie. I thought we'd now move into your time as CEO and, and Managing Director of the firm for more than a decade during the period 2008 to 2018. You worked, as you mentioned before, closely with Alan Moss and Tony Berg. What did you take away from your experiences with those great leaders of the firm when you were first appointed to the role in 08? The respect for the culture of the firm, number one, and the culture being this bottom-up driven culture, this um, you know risk within boundaries. You know, I, I had really bought onto that philosophy. I'd seen it work, uh, both in terms of keeping us safe. Tony was very focused on keeping us safe, keeping us safe financially in terms of the exposures that we would take, uh, keeping us safe reputationally. I mean, it was quite a discussion point that that Tony would not deal with. The people he called the entrepreneurs. You know, back in the uh, back in the pre-87 crash days, there was a lot of people running around borrowing money, leveraging up companies. And Tony was clear that, from a reputational viewpoint, you know, reputation was the most important thing. We weren't going to have that brought into question. So Tony was very uh, risk-focused. Alan had again; he had come through originally in investment banking. Then he was went to the um, the risk management side of the group. So he was very steeped in uh, risk management and then he had a role in the financial markets area as well before he became the CEO. So risk management was very much part of who he was. Both Tony and Alan obviously personally are people of you know, the highest integrity and very capable. They were the you know, role models that I had and so I stepped in with a great respect for, um, you know, for the people who had preceded me and the culture that had existed, and I was, you know, I was a, a function of the culture, of course, in terms of, you know, where I had been up until that time. So you were appointed in May 2008. You get your feet under the desk, so to speak. You obviously want stability in the firm in, in what's a turbulent economic period throughout the world. How did you go about having stability in the firm, but also wanting to prosecute your, your agenda? Stability, obviously, um, is very important, and. Prosecuting my agenda, as you said, my, my agenda was was the perpetuation of the culture as I as I perceived it, which was one of you know a rational culture of being stuck in at all the things that we had been doing for the sake of having done them. We needed to look at the risk and return of each of our different businesses, which was a natural part of who we were at Macquarie. Be very disciplined about okay. Does this make sense today? It might have, you know, it might have made sense five years ago or two years ago, but this is a different world. Every day is a new world, and let's and let's make sure we look at them clearly. So, from that end, we looked through all our different businesses, our different portfolio. We tried to, you know, we were respectful of the work that people had put into them, but we asked ourselves, well, is this a business for us going forward? From what we can see today. And so we exited 
a whole range of different businesses that made no sense uh, in the current environment. And that, you know, obviously causes pain. We were feeling pain, obviously, you know, given the economic circumstances anyway. But I think we were sufficiently confident in who we were as an organisation that we could make those decisions. And we would mostly, the business people involved, we would walk them down saying we're having a decision about your business and they would mostly recommend what we should be doing, which is, which is the way the culture should work. You know, very transparent, uh, very honest, very rational. And then in, we wanted to make sure, as you're saying, that it wasn't just a question of what are we getting out of, but making sure we maintain the optionality in terms of what could we be growing into and making sure that the people in our organisation were aware that we were still open for business. And yes, we were looking at what the portfolio was, but we were very open to look at new opportunities. And we looked at new opportunities with a very critical eye in terms of risk. We didn't just blindly go into anything, of course. We applied the same critical faculties in looking at what was new as in terms of what was old. But again, we had that sort of bias to yes, we had always been in the organisation. And we made sure that people weren't just going into the bunker to hide to wait for the storm to pass, to actually make sure that we were active. And so as a result of that, as I said, we exited a lot of businesses, none of which we regretted exiting, which is always the case. And we were able to step up and grow our platform in a range of important ways, some of which were successful, some of which were not successful. And that was always an important part of the culture, to actually say to people, we don't know what the future's going to be. We know once we start down a journey, we'll be a lot better informed about the business or about what we want to do, and we'll continuously make discussions. We'll have discussions about, is this what we want to be doing? And we will continuously ask ourselves the question. So it's not as if we woke up in 2008 and we sort of said, OK, let's have a great big colour of all our businesses. We wanted to make sure there was a constant process of always looking at our businesses. And many of the businesses over my 10 years uh, in the group that we exited were good businesses. You know, indeed, most of them were good businesses. It's just the risk and the return weren't right for us at that time. And the, in terms of the new businesses we embarked on, some of them worked for a while, some of them didn't work, and some of them continue to work. And what we wanted to make sure, coming back to this cultural question, is that we're always looking at them with the critical eye of saying, does this work for us from a risk return viewpoint? Uh, is this a sensible thing for us to be doing? And you know, trying to do that consistently, because people have invested in their businesses. You know, they're investing, they're putting their time and their and their and their hopes and their aspirations and all the rest. So there's, you know, naturally, if you're coming back to sort of say, well, you know, this isn't working, or why is this going to work? People will push back. So making sure you have the culture in the organisation that is accepting and open and engaging. And I think that was one of the the things as an organisation culturally, we really, you know, we really got right. You spoke about exiting some businesses there, but as you mentioned, you also acquired some new businesses in August of '09. Most critically, you acquired Delaware Investments for around about $430 million US. It had $125 billion of, of assets under management. Take us inside 
this decision we're in the depths or a little bit past the, the sort of depths of the GFC. This was obviously a transformational deal. As you said, some worked, some didn't. How did this fit into that landscape? Yeah, well, there was a couple of deals around that, quite a few deals around that time we did. Uh, that was an important deal. I'm not sure I'd call it transformation. I'd say it's very important in that our asset management business, you know, sort of consisted of two parts. We had the one that we had developed from the ground up being the infrastructure business. And we're broadening that out into a whole range of different categories. You can see now, for example, you know, green investments, you know, we're doing then. Uh, we had separate funds for power and for roads and for airports and for communications. And we had a whole range of different businesses. So that was the organic one. And then we had the sort of traditional asset management business here in Australia. So equities, bonds, things of that nature, cash. And Delaware was an international version of that smaller business that we had in Australia. So it was giving us scale and giving us scope in the US. It wasn't of the same magnitude as our existing, you know, infrastructure, real assets business. That was far larger and continued to be far larger in terms of value and, uh, and profitability. So it was a good step up. At that same time, though, another acquisition that we made was the Constellation Energy acquisition. Uh, and so this was um, uh, Andrew Down and Nico Kane had in their commodities business, which they had been growing in Australia. As I mentioned, when we bought BT, for example, we bought an agricultural commodities business as part of that. So we there in Australia, traditionally, we were doing things like uh, financing gold. So we did metals, precious metals, financing, uh, trading. Uh, we did, um, you know, there's a little bit in the fixed income area, swaps, foreign exchange. And as an initiative of Nick and Andrew was this idea of energy. You know, energy is an important, you know, looking around the world in terms of commodities, it's one of the most important commodities in the world. And so they'd put a, a toe in the water uh, earlier in terms of a small uh, gas business in a small energy business in California. And then Constellation was a, um, was a company that had this energy trading business. Uh, which they couldn't own because there was an insurance company that had they, they got downgraded, and and Nick and Andrew saying, "Can we do this?" And so we sort of worked out, "Yes, we can do that." So that was that turned out to be um, probably it looked less dramatic at the time, but the way these things grew, that grew into very much that North American energy business. That if you look at Macquarie's recent profitability, uh, has been so important to it. Now, the way both those businesses, coming back to the point of your question, happened, it wasn't a top-down head office says, let's do more in gas in North America or let's do more in fixed assets in, or, or um, asset management in North America. It was the businesses themselves. So Ben Brook was in the asset management area. He was, had been looking actively to grow his asset management business through M&A for years. We'd seen quite a few different opportunities come up. He had presented. For whatever reason, the price got away from us. This opportunity came. So Ben was very keen in terms of driving it. Shamara, of course, uh, was running the business at that time on top of Ben, and the two of them were able to bring that business on board. Similarly, Andrew, Nico Kane, Energy, North America, again, bottom up. They saw the opportunity. They were able to work on it. What we did in the centre, uh, we had this, you know, view of what the centre does is support both of those two different businesses in terms of what they were doing by making sure that we had the capital available to fund it, 
that we have the lines available, the credit available, you know, all those different things that one need. And of course, the risk systems available to manage it. And so that's what we did in the centre was working to support those businesses. And that was the ideal model that we would have people in the different businesses who would be growing a business, you know, two step forward, one step back as normal, all normal businesses. I'm doing this, I want to do this, it works. I want to do this, it doesn't work so much. I pull back a little bit here, I go a little bit in that direction. I go a bit in this direction. You know, I feel my way, you know, forward. You know, they're always constantly, you know, going into it into areas of uncertainty, which of course business always is, but feeling your way forward. You're not taking big, bold steps, taking nice little steps, working out which is the right step or not. And the acquisitions that we were doing, all of them, the businesses had to be able to afford them. And when I say afford them, not just afford them financially, but afford for them to go wrong. And so we had to work out in everything we did, what's the downside? Okay, we buy the US asset management business. What happens if we lose the customers? How many customers do we lose? What do we, how do we think about how we keep the customers? How do we keep the people on board? How, we, how do we bring that? So this sort of how do we minimise our losses if it goes wrong and therefore we have the optionality if it goes right? And similarly with the Constellation Energy, it's, well, what can go wrong here, you know? How do we make sure we have the systems, the safety systems, the compliance systems from a regulatory viewpoint? How do we make sure that we can, you know, that no matter what happens, that this will be, that we can afford this in terms of what goes wrong? And so that ability to bottom out everything we do is was always fundamental at Macquarie. Yes, we, we have the optionality in terms of the new business where we're going, but if it goes wrong, it's got to be affordable. So nothing should be able, nothing should go wrong uh, that will threaten the firm or even threaten the business that's engaged in it. And so using that philosophy, which was shared across the group, the individuals had the power to go out and, and build and they knew the parameters in terms of what they were doing. And then if you take that a, a step further, so you're, you're really looking at the worst case scenario of an investment and then you're looking at the upside after that. Yep. But how does that work in a practical sort of risk framework approach? I mean, you're the CEO, when you were the CEO of the business, obviously it's not top down, so you're not deciding where the risk is. Is it a central committee that reviews every one of these deals or is it a, a, a central division of the business yep. and then you're there occasionally or when it's over a certain amount? Or? Yeah, yeah. No, it's very structured, as you say. So number one principle most important is the business owns the risk. So if the business, and this is what we'd seen in other organisations, you know, the, some of the banks I mentioned before that we had bought, there was sort of a, dis, a gap between the people who put the business on versus the people who manage the risk afterwards. Now we had a very clear philosophy that the business owns the risk. If you put a risk on, whether it's a gas contract, whether it's an asset management business you paid money for for goodwill, you own that. The fact that that head office approved it doesn't mean that you don't own it. You own that risk. You know, Big Al, I remember Alan Moss used to say, I want to know that if something goes wrong in the business, and there always will be something going wrong, that at four o'clock in the morning, the owner of that business, you know, the person who's managing it is lying awake at night worrying about it. That we wanted to have that small business energy and worry and, and agency and ownership in a larger organisation. So the most important point is the manager of the business had to own the risk as a small business owner would. Every element of it, they have to own it. So that's number one. They own it, they never give it up. To protect our bigger organisation, we would have structures in place 
that would set all the limits that you're talking about. We would give them a limit in terms of whether it was funding, whether it was credit, whatever it was they needed, operational risk, all these different things, you know, IT systems and all the rest, the standards they had to apply to. So they're owning the risk. Even if the computers are being provided by IT, if the computers don't work, the manager owns that, right? They've got to get the right systems from IT. It's not good enough to say, oh, well, IT gave me bad software. Not good enough. You've got to own it. But we did have all these different service areas across the group who were providing services into the business, and we expected robust discussions on all those service provisions in terms of what was happening to, uh, to make it all work. So that was the sort of you know, underlying uh, discipline um, in the organisation to keep it tight. So from an organisational viewpoint, what does the chief executive do? We make sure the people who are providing those services are sufficiently robust and tough and supported, you know, from a, from a, a credit viewpoint. You know, I, you know, I remember Mary Rimst was in charge of credit. And, you know, I'd say to her very clearly, like, I, I'm not going to override your credit decisions. You make the decision. I trust you, Mary. And, you know, we would never override to say yes when she had said no. Um, um, never, never. And, you know, we would, it would basically, if she wasn't comfortable, and this is again coming back to uh, my predecessor, I'm not I couldn't, shouldn't speak to it, all the rest, but the people who are in credit have, like, the final say. You know, it's, you, you, don't ex, you don't go to uh, the person above there to say yes if, if credit has said no. Um, so we had credit and we had, you know, all the different elements as well where those people uh, were fully empowered in terms of their own, uh, their own space to make sure it worked. And in terms of the success of, of your tenure, uh, I think in May 2009 the share price of Macquarie was $18.01 and by the time it was announced to the market or the day before it was announced to the market that you were uh, stepping down from the role, it was $122.03, so a uh, huge gain over that time. But you did transform the business. 70% uh, of income by the time you'd left the business was derived from overseas, 300% increase in shareholder returns. Um, and so many of these other elements. How did you go about building? It was a global business, but you obviously had a focus on annuity-style international income. When you reflect on your 10 years as CEO, how do you gauge or what's your take on how you're able to achieve that? The most important thing I think a CEO does, or one of the most important things, is communication. So we found the need of being able to express who we are internally and externally was almost the most important challenge. You know, they, they talk about the culture of an organisation is, you know, what happens when no one's looking. What really matters is that people know what they're expected to do at all time. So they need to know what the organisation is all about. And so all these things we've talked about, people have to understand them and have to understand how it relates to them. And it can't be in a complex manual, you know. When this happens, open up the book here. When this happens, open up the book there. There have to be some simple guiding principles. Now, as I've said, there were simple guiding principles within Macquarie. The question is, with the diversity of businesses, the diversity of offices, to make sure 
that everybody's on the same page and everyone knows what's expected of them at all times. You know, really critically important to, to have that, that understanding. And secondly, to have the broad understanding understood by the shareholders. So with Macquarie, we had been a very successful organisation that had evolved, you know, from being a, a subsidiary of Hill Samuel uh, UK to Macquarie Group listed in Australia. We only, you know, listed, I think, in 96 or something. What we found in 2008, when the whole world went to hell, people stepped back from everything and said, what is this company? You know, what, what is the company that... Uh, that I'm invested in, not just Macquarie, but, you know, large numbers of companies out there. And we were particularly a particularly complex company when you look at all the different businesses we had. And so the question for people looking at us, and it still is the challenge for Shamara and the team, is, OK, what are you? You know, what is... How do I understand what it is that you do to work out whether I want to invest in you or not? So having that um, that identity in people's mind is quite... Is, is quite challenging. So the role of the CEO, I think, is, as I said, is this communication one, of making sure the people in the firm know what, what you're expecting them to do and communicating that and reinforcing it. And it's not just, as I said, giving people a book and saying, see, you, off you go. It's everything you do and everything they see has to reinforce that message. And for the outside world, similarly, to understand what it is that this organisation is about and making sure it's not just what you say, of course, it's what you do and making sure what you're doing is consistent with what you're saying you're going to do. You know, that, you know this, this thing of life, it's, it's most important. So I think that's what the, the role of the CEO for us was. And so we had a, to help with this process, we ended up with, you know, coming out with uh, the, the three values. We used to have a, a book at one stage that was put together, What We Stand For, which was a very thoughtful view of the culture of Macquarie as it was back then. But it was a book. It wasn't a very long book, but it's still a book. We then reduced that book to, you know, I think 14 different principles or 12 different principles. And they were all good, but, you know, if you ask people what they were, they, you know, they, would, they would have been challenged. So we reduced our sort of management philosophy into three terms. And the three terms could mean anything, you know, to any organisation. But people did read it in a Macquarie sense the way that we wanted them to read it in. So when we talked to them about this in London, when they played it back, it was like, yes. In America, yes. In Japan, yes. Across the region, yes. People understood, you know, when we were able to express it, they understood that this was a crystallisation of the culture that they had experienced. And then they were able to take that culture and perpetuate it. Because, you know, remember the... I think the you'd have 20% of the staff turning over in any year, normally. So the, the need to understand the culture and live with it because you're constantly communicating it to, to new people. And so, they, you know, the, the words we used there were, were opportunity, accountability and integrity. Now, opportunity was a natural for Macquarie. People all knew, always knew we were out looking for... You know, we had this openness to new ideas and so opportunity had to be part and we made it we made it very clear and people did understand very clear it wasn't just opportunity for new business it was opportunity to do your business better opportunity to look at different systems and so we 
we sort of when we had staff reviews, we used to ask people whether in the back office or the front office, okay, what new opportunities? How have you how have you looked at what you're doing in your workplace to do it better? You know, that was expected of everybody. Accountability, again, was a, a key element everybody in Macquarie knew. Coming back to this idea of your view in a a small business owner in a big organisation, you're accountable. You're accountable for everything in that business, whether the computers work, whether the staff are, you know, are polite, like everything in the business you're accountable for. So you've got to be accountable for. And of course, integrity, that was um, always a hallmark of an organisation, you know, as I've described before, that is very open, very flat, transparent. People have to be totally honest in terms of their dealings internally and externally uh, because you know you just can't be constant you know you can't be second guessing people are you telling the truth or not when you're talking to customers or internally unless there's total honesty and total transparency the whole system doesn't work so integrity was 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 fundamental to it so when we came up with that internally you know the good thing is people responded to it well and we were able to build our reporting along those simple principles, staff reviews, as I mentioned, you know, uh, promotion, profit share, all that. And then externally, as you say, we, we had the, the model of we've got these different businesses, but we're able to group them into two broad groups, number one being the annuity category, being asset management and businesses like that, where the income would come in on a regular basis every year. But is that what, as well as that, we had our volatile businesses, you know, such as our commodities business and investment banking businesses, where the income would go up and down having regard to their different markets. And, and you know, and the good thing is there were quite different markets within commodities versus investment banking, you know, and what have you. So we had these two different categories and we had we broke our businesses down into six different identifiable businesses that people could see. They could sort of see asset management, well I understand that, that's good, tick that off. Retail business, retail banking, understand that, tick, we can look at that. Um, leasing, we understand what leasing business is good, I can tick that off and I can see why they're stable. I can look at the book, I can look at the bad debt levels, all that. I can I can understand your performance, I can see how that works, good, I can put, get my mind around that. I can put a multiple on it or what have you. Then I've got the commodity businesses, what are the commodity business? Well, I understand what an equities business is, I understand what a commodities business is, I can understand uh, what an investment banking business, I can see they're more volatile but I can see that their volatility will not always be correlated together and so I can work out. So by explaining the business like that uh, and giving P&Ls based on those to our investors, you know, before our P&Ls had been aggregated, they could then look at each, each business as a separate business. They could see the P&Ls, they could see what sort of multiple they could put at it and therefore they're a lot more confident in terms of dealing with us as investors because they got it. And coming back to we say what would happen you know, if this happens, we'd never make forecasts, of course, because who knows what the future will be. But I say, if this will happen, then you'll see this result. And if that happens, you'll see that result. And then they could see that, you know, as the years progressed, they could see how, you know, interest rates would affect this business or commodity prices would affect that business. And therefore, they got a, a great degree of confidence. And that's what you're you know, talking about in both these internal and external categories of giving people confidence that investors knew how the place would perform. And similarly, staff knew what they, it was expected of them and therefore how they should, again, perform. And, you know, both, both of those, you know, were entirely transparent to all, all people. So everybody in the asset management business, they got the same P&L as the people outside the business got. You know, similarly in the investment banking, everybody's working off the same P&L, the same account internally and externally. 
everybody understands these three you know fundamental pillars of the business both internally and externally so that you know there's the commonality of expectation and all the rest so that's the the key role of um, of you know in our case of the of the central groups of actually making sure that's well understood and it's not just a good story but it actually lives day to day in every part of the business You've been very generous with your time, so just a couple of uh, quick questions to finish. And outside of Macquarie, you've obviously had a, an elaborate uh, life in, in so many uh, different ventures. Chairman of PTYC New South Wales, Chairman of the Smith Family Charity, Chairman of Screen Australia, uh, Willow Corporation and, and so many other aspects. Uh, I do want to ask about your approach to, to life and business in a general sense. What are the, what are the keys for success? in general, do you think? Well, I think the you know, starting point is you've got to want to do it. I know that's self-evident, but some people want elements associated with business, you know, money or glory or something like that. That's far less important than actually wanting to do whatever it is. And so the people who were successful in Macquarie from what our experience in business, they actually are really deep, deeply interested and love the actual subject matter that they're engaged in. So I think that's uh, number one. I think also in terms of that wanting to do it, coming back to whether you're going to be a manager or just a subject matter expert. And again, everybody, you know, there's a lot of kudos in being management, but again, people who are good managers are people who do like working with people and do like managing people and do like managing, not just managing people to have them, you know, like here are people here and I'm managing them, but actually have a clear purpose and they can actually have their people go towards that purpose. Now, there's a lot of challenges uh, working with people, obviously. Some people love it, and some people say, look, I'd prefer not. So I think, I think number one is, um, is, is, is you know, wanting, wanting being interested in the subject matter, and if you're going to be running a business, to be interested in, in people, and bring, you know, that whole idea of working together as a team and, and achieving something. What about overcoming challenges, whether in, in life or in business? How have you been able to overcome adversity? Um, well, I think in business, you know, we used to have a, a corny expression that I used, um, being a corny sort of guy, failing to success, where if you're trying to do new things, inevitably they're going to fail. But that's, of course, not the whole story. The question is, OK, what have you learnt? And how do you pick up those constant lessons and how do you then apply them? And so I used to use these charts when we were you know, talking about you know, communicating as, as either head of the um, investment banking group or head of Macquarie or what have you, to have these presentations internally within the group when I'd say, look, you look at our businesses now and they're all very successful and you look at where they come from and it's all you know, bottom left, top right. It sort of wasn't like that on the way through. You know, we went, it was a zigzaggy line all the way through. We tried this, it didn't work. We tried that, it worked a bit. Therefore, we built on that and we went that way and this way. So I would, I would illustrate that every business we had at Macquarie or when we were in the investment banking group, every business we had in the investment banking group, we went in different directions. We went the wrong direction. The key point, though, is actually that sort of tenacity, you know, sort of liking of the business that when, you, when it's not quite going the right way, you're able to pull back rationally examine what you're doing and then head off, take the next step into a different direction. You know, that coming back to the, you know, crossing the stream, feeling, feeling for stones, you know, that another, you know, the corny cliche. You don't know where you're going, so you, things are going to go wrong, but how do you take those lessons, 
once something's gone wrong, you've learnt so much more from it. You know, with Macquarie, we, you know, we inevitably, with all these new businesses, things went wrong. And I think what we were good at is actually learning the lessons and maybe not going there again, or maybe saying, well, that lesson tells me I, I just go here a little bit differently than I did before. And so I think, I think success is, you know, coming back to what we said before, you, you, you've, got, you've got to want to do it. You've got to be obviously tenacious and all those different ideas. But you've also got to have the courage, the confidence to try. And when it doesn't go right, because it won't, actually change, reshape, you know, rethink, have another look at it, be happy to say, OK, well, this doesn't work and we're going to step away. But even better, how do we actually take what we've learnt and take the next step forward? Final question. Australia's long-term future over the next decade, two, three decades, what, you're, you're an optimist, as I understand it. What are the, the opportunities for Australia and, and perhaps what are some of the challenges that we need to overcome? Um, well, there's you know, lots of opportunities. You know, as, you, as you say, I am an optimist. We have new technology happening in Australia and around the world on a constant basis that will make our businesses more efficient, our lives better. It's happened throughout my lifetime and I have no doubt it's going to continue. So there is an underlying... Uh, benefit coming through in terms of, you know, economists would call it productivity, technological innovation, what have you, that will continue to drive us forward. As well as that in Australia, obviously, we're a, uh, it's a wonderful country. The world sees it's a wonderful country. You know, I think we've got over 400,000 new people coming to Australia. Uh, this year, I think we're going to continue to see people choose Australia as a, a great place to live, a great place to grow and have families and what have you. So I have no doubt that that appeal will continue. Uh, so both the demographic and the technological driver will bring us forward. And I think culturally from a, uh, uh, Australia is not just a, a great place to, to live, but it's, I think it's, we've got sufficient competitiveness in our economy already in terms of the competition domestically but perhaps even more importantly, internationally, so many Australian companies are competing on the international stage today. And, you know, back when I started work, you know, before the country fully opened up, we were obviously very open as an economy even back in 1982, but we've opened up more since then. If we keep this confidence of being open to the world, you know, our businesses can, you know, as we saw with Macquarie and many other companies out there, Macquarie, CSL, Cochlear, ResMed, you know, it's a list of Australian companies, that can successfully compete compete in the, in the in the world, in a world that's growing and getting richer all the time. I think our um, um, I think there will be a lot of opportunities globally as well as that domestically. And I think as as time goes on, you know the world and certainly Australia. I'm very much you know believing the Steven Pinker view of the world that not only are we becoming materially richer, you know I think we are becoming you know kinder as well. We're certainly not say we're we're far from being a uh, you know, infinitely kind society. But I think we are becoming kind. I think in my lifetime I've seen we've become kinder and I think that will continue as well in terms of how we deal with each other. No shortage of challenges, but as you say, I'm, I'm an optimist in terms of, of where those, uh, where those uh, directions are going. Nicholas Moore, AO, thank you very much for your time and what a remarkable career. It's been a, a privilege to share some of your insights. Very kind and, and very generous in your comments, so thank you very much for that, Rob.